Well, if you got a Bible this morning, go ahead and open to John chapter 20. John 20. Um, we've been in John for some time, right? Started in chapter 1, verse 1, and we're nearing the end. We'll break chapter 21 into two pieces, and then we'll be done with this thing. So uh, today we got uh, John 20, verses 30 through 31, and then we'll close with chapter 21 the next couple of weeks. We talked uh, last week, and, and really throughout the book, I've talked about this some, but the, uh, some of the literary elements that are in John, you know, we talked about the things like prologue and the body of work and so forth and so on, conclusion, thesis, all that junk. Uh, and we'll talk about that more uh, in just a few minutes. But as we keep that in mind, you know, I started with that last week and I mentioned that, and I'm going to start with it again this week because we also see structure like that, literary structure, not just in books. We, also, we definitely see it in books because it says prologue or epilogue or whatever it may be above the things we're about to read. But even in movies and TV shows, which I mentioned last week with the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and you guys got out of control and I had to bring us down a little bit. Um, but we see this even in modern media. And I'm going to give you another example of that. Even if they don't announce it by name, these themes, these literary themes are in the media that we consume. Another one is one of my favorites, which is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Does anybody love that movie like me? I love that movie. And it's, it shouldn't be as funny as it is. And yet, I just can't help but just crack up every time that I watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off. The, if you've never seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off, it's a, about a charming and lovable kid who plays hooky from school and instead decides that he's just going to live life to the fullest. And so even in that movie, it doesn't say, here's the prologue, but there's a prologue statement in the movie of uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And it's a time when uh, he decides that he's going to take his day off from the mundane of school, play hooky. And he says this statement while he's getting ready for not school. And he says, he's in the shower, I think, and he says, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. Do you remember him saying that? Anybody that's seen the movie remember that? He says, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. And that's his way of saying, life's too short to not live in the moment. Isn't that what the whole movie's about? Life's too short to not live in the moment. And so what he decides to do is, instead of doing the mundane school stuff, I'm going to go and just have uh, a day off, right? because his life was so hard in high school, I'm sure. He goes to have a day off, and that's sort of the body of work of the whole movie, and the whole movie is that body of work, his day off and him living life to the fullest. He convinces his parents that he's sick, using a clever mechanism, including a mannequin arm that's attached to a doorknob by string and a stereo triggered to make snoring no noises to fool people, not to mention the doorbell recording of a very convincing, there's a boy inside that's sick, he wasn't inside, and he wasn't sick, right? Then he and his two best friends spend the day swimming and touring Ch Chicago's Sears Tower, sneaking their way into a fancy restaurant. They go to a Cubs baseball game. They tour the Art Institute of Chicago. They crash a parade where Ferris, true to form, becomes the center of attention, where he lip syncs, twists, and shouts, right? They also do all of that in the, in the company of... Uh, uh, not so borrowed Ferrari, right, that they took from his best friend's dad. And they end it all in, their in a stranger's jacuzzi before he runs home, right? And he runs home, he does run home, and exhausted and racing to get home before his ruse is sniffed out by his parents, he gets back in bed just in time for them to get home, march up the stairs, home from work, open the door, and find their sick son still in bed, right? It's a really good movie, you should watch it. It's a good movie. They leave him to rest, and he looks at the camera, and he like does his little charming wink, right? Because he's such a sweet and innocent kid that just did all this to his parents. He turns to the camera, and the last line, do you know it? The very last line before the credits roll is the prologue or the thesis. Again, he says, 
Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. And then he gives that big cheesy grin, and then it goes freeze frame, and then the credits roll, right? But it's not a mistake. He is restating the prologue because the thesis is stated at the very beginning of the movie and says, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. And at the very end, he restates that. You know why? Because that's the whole point of the movie. The whole theme of the whole movie is that the author of the movie, the writing of the script, is to say, slow down, take it all in, live it up, live life to the fullest. Now, I'm not going to talk about whether or not that's good theology, but in John, we also see something similar. Although there's a 21st chapter, which we'll look at, like I said, next week and the week after, the 21st chapter is sort of like a post-credits scene. These two verses that we're going to focus in on today are the end of the book of John, and then there's more to the book of John. But this is where it ends, because this is where he has ended the narrative. The narrative's over with what Thomas said that we looked at two weeks ago, or uh, last week rather, and then now this week he says, here's the whole reason that I wrote these things down once again. The book of John has ended here. And so I want to look at this slide that I showed you guys last week. Go ahead and throw up that sort of the literary things there. Again, I mentioned prologue, which is introduction, which is John 1, 1 through 18. Then you have the narrative support where he says all the things that tell us why Jesus is these things. He says in the prologue, right? that Jesus has authority over creation, that Jesus is God. In a name, he is the Christ. Some received him, most rejected him. But he said that those that received him in the prologue, he gave the right to become children of God. And then it enters into the narrative support of that prologue, where he's already said, here's all the reasons that you should believe and not reject Jesus. And so these, this body of support are all these demonstrations, these signs of Jesus's identity. And then it kind of ends with Jesus saying to his disciples, I'm going to your father and my father, the ones that he's given the right to become children of God. And then Thomas, of course, with his declaration, my Lord and my God, which is the very last thing, sort of puts a stamp on the fact that the prologue was exactly right. And finally, it ends with a conclusion or a purpose statement at the end of chapter 20, which is what we're seeing today. And this is just John's way of restating the thesis and saying, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God, and the plea that we're going to see this morning, which I've sort of titled my message, is will you receive him or will you reject him? Here's all the evidence. Here's the body of work. Now back to you. Will you receive? Will you reject? And we're going to talk about that this morning, and that receiving is not just a once salvation endeavor. Receiving Jesus as the Christ is something that you and I choose to do every single moment of every single day. It certainly takes place when we choose salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. But guys, the endeavor of choosing Jesus as the Christ is an every single day endeavor for us. It's called sanctification. So let's look at it. Starting in verse 28 is where we're going to be. John chapter 20, starting in verse 28. Just because these two verses sort of set up what are the 30 and 31, this conclusion. Starting in verse 28, it says this. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now look at verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
Now, normally what we would do when we look at, especially the book of John, which is thoroughly narrative, is that we go verse by verse and really unpack a lot of the things that we see here. And we're going to do that today, but it's just a couple of verses. And we've already read these verses many times as we've been going through this book. And so what we're going to do is because John's aim is summary and driving home a point, that's what our aim is going to be as well. I started at the very beginning, and we never we first started this book of John a long time ago. I said that it was the gospel according to John. And the reason I emphasize it's the gospel according to John is because he has an agenda that's even different a little bit from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He wants to say certain things that stick out, and so what he wants his agenda to be, we want to pull that. We don't want to be my agenda or our agenda. We want it to be John's agenda, what he's trying to expose about who Jesus is today. The main thrust of John was in detailing his signs ministry centered around that idea that Jesus is the Christ. So look at verse 30. We're going to talk about this word now in a, in a few moments. But it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. In fact, some of them are written in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. A lot of them are written in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But Jesus did signs. Signs are indicators. Another word for sign, maybe a synonymous word would be miracles. Now, Jesus did these miracles in the sight of all these people. But John uses the word sign, and again, he does it for a purpose. There are a lot of signs in our world, right? Signs are indicators. They're meant to communicate something, not just to be seen and be like, that's a cool sign. You drive down the interstate and you see a sign that says, uh, what well, doesn't really have to say, right? It's just like a, a red sign with sort of a, a C that looks kind of like a chicken. And you know, I need to stop and get a chicken sandwich because that's the Lord's chicken. That's Chick-fil-A, right? But why do you do that? Why do you feel that way? Your mouth starts to water when you even see that sign. You know why? Because signs are indicators and they want you to do something. They want you to see the sign and not, that's a cool design of that sign. That's not the purpose of it, right? What's the purpose? To get you to stop, to get you to come inside, and just be blessed, right? That's what they do. But not just that, there are other signs. Like if you were to be driving down the road and you're kind of cruising along and then you see a sign that says road work ahead, you know what they don't want you to do? Say, huh, all right. They want you to see that sign and say, okay, I need to do something. They want me to do something as a response of that sign. And that is to what? Slow down, right? Because signs are not just there to be beheld. They're there to give you an indicator and to warrant some sort of response. And biblical signs were no different. They were indicators. They wanted to give you a response or call you to respond. Demonstrations they were of Jesus' actual identity. And so when John says he did all these signs, what he's really saying is, don't you know that these are signs that point to the fact that he's not just a miracle worker, he's the Christ. Believe in him. In other words, Jesus didn't turn water into wine just to give people something good to drink. He didn't just restore a blind man's sight just so that that guy could see again. He did the signs to prove and to demonstrate that he is the Lord over water and wine, that he is the Lord over the eyes. John 2, 23 tells us he did many other signs. The healing of the official son in John chapter 4, the healing of the, the paralytic in chapter 5, the feeding of the multitude, 5,000 in chapter 6, the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11, and certainly Calvary that we saw just a little while ago. All of those things happen, not just for people to say, wow, he can do some pretty cool things, but to say, this guy's the Christ. May we believe in him. And according to verse 30, he did many more. In fact, according to chapter 21, verse 25, if you look down at the very last verse of the book, it says, Now 
There are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus did a lot of signs, and John just picked a few of them. He believes that he's proven his objective in introducing the many signs that Jesus did, but he selected the ones that he did for a purpose, and he states the purpose in verse 31. But these, the ones that he just wrote down, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, here's the result, you may have life in his name. I mentioned in, in the ESV, which is what I'm preaching from in verse 30, it starts with the word now. And when we see the word now, maybe you think about time. Uh, when is this going to happen? It's going to happen now. But this isn't just a time statement. The word now in the original language would be a, a sort of a conjunction, like saying this happened before, and now I'm going to write this down. So this, this now word sort of connects what happens before it to the words that come right after it. And here's the reason that I point that out. is because in verse 29, Jesus says to, to Thomas, you believe because you've seen me. You've, you've seen the nail wounds. You've seen the, 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 the place in my side. He says that in, in verse 29. He says, but there are going to be people that are, don't see me, and yet I want them to believe too. Those guys are blessed. The ones that don't see and yet believe. The ones that have to hear it through second hand or third hand or fourth hand and generations later. And it's in that realm that verse 30 happens where it says, now. So as a result of the fact that there are people that don't see, now, John says, that's why I've written all these these things down. Because there are going to be people that don't see, and yet God is going to call them to believe. Now, therefore, I'm writing these things down so that you and me and you will believe. It's very important. When John, when John penned these words, in his mind, this is very important, John wasn't writing a religious textbook. Okay? This is very important. When he wrote these things down, he wasn't writing a religious textbook. He wasn't writing a textbook of the faith. When John wrote these things down, he was writing an earnest plea to an audience that he would never know. He was writing an earnest plea, not a religious textbook, not where we say this verse, this verse, this is where we build all these doctrines, and we can do that. But at the very core, John's goal was to say, please, please believe. That's why a lot of the commentaries that you may read, if you go and read a commentary on John, you know what a lot of them call him? The evangelist. Because that is at its core what he is. An earnest plea to an audience And because of that, we need to know the audience. To really be able to soak in what is being said here, we need to know that this audience is mostly non-believing Jews that were steeped in Judaism, as well as also maybe some Gentile converts to Judaism, but mostly non-believers, some believers, but mostly non-believers, but people who feared God, but had not trusted in Jesus as Messiah, as Lord and Savior. And so to know the audience is then to know the plea, is that he comes on the scene, John does, and says, fear God, yes, Trust in Jesus. He's from him. Trust in the Galilean man, Jesus, as specifically the Christ, which is what it says in verse 31. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, the question, who is the Christ, is a question that had been on this audience, these these guys that John is firsthand writing to, a question that had been on this audience's hearts for hundreds of years. And the reason for that is because the category of Christ— 
was very important to them and to their history and to their heritage. The way that your ears may perk up if you hear a conversation in passing, you may be at a restaurant or at Walmart. If you're in, in the public and you hear someone talking, maybe uh, you overhear somebody talking about a pro-life versus a pro-choice conversation. Because that's something you may care about, what happens? You can't help but your ears sort of perk up to that, right? There are other things. You hear that bad weather is headed for Lauderdale County, and maybe you hear that kind of chirping in the background, and your ears kind of perk up a little bit, don't they? Or maybe you hear someone talk about, you know, I've heard that gas prices are going to be in the $6 range before this is all said and done. And we go, what? Why? Because you care about that. You care about those things. See, readers of John would be intrigued, interested, their ears would perk up by an explicit statement of the identity of the Christ. Their ears would perk up to that. And John knew that. So we reread this verse I want you to see, in light of knowing the audience and knowing what a, what a heavy, weighty, important subject matter this is, look at verse 31 again and see how loud and bold this declaration is. Again, as an earnest plea to an audience. Reread verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Do you hear that? It's not just Jesus is the Christ. No, in italics almost, underline, that Jesus is the one. He's the one that you should be longing for, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. No doubt, John's main goal in writing this gospel is evangelism, and he's effective. But it doesn't change the fact that this book has accomplished and does accomplish much more than just evangelism. It instructs us, corrects us, comforts us, amazes us. And I think that over the last few months, all those things have probably happened to us. But the purpose is that the reader may believe, whether once in salvation or every day in sanctification, growing to be more like Jesus is what that means, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And this needs to be said, and I'm going to get to some things on the screen in just a moment if you want to write those down, but we'll get there in a second. But this needs to be said, and I've said this before, that Christ wasn't Jesus' last name, right? It wasn't Jesus' last name. It wasn't like you, you drive down uh, Galilee Street, and you see a mailbox that says, Christ, comma, Jesus. It's like, oh, that's, that's where Jesus Christ lives. Look up the phone book, Christ, comma, Jesus. It's not his last name, right? No, Christ was an identity term. It was a term that had meaning. And Jesus wasn't Jesus Christ, last name Christ. He was the Christ. Go and put that slide up there where it says Messiah and Christ. I just want you guys to see this. You may wonder, what's the difference between Messiah and Christ? There is none. It's two different languages that mean the exact same thing. The Messiah is a Hebrew word. Christ is a Greek word, and they mean the same thing, and I've put sort of the, a very shortened definition right there below it. Very simply, Christ, Messiah, it means anointed one. It means the one that's set apart for a task or a purpose. And so Hebrew speakers or Aramaic speakers would know the word Messiah, and that's why you see it a lot of the time, especially in Matthew, who's writing to a, a thoroughly Jewish audience. Matthew uses the word Messiah a lot. John uses the word Greek, or the, the Greek word Christ a lot, and he uses really both of them interchangeably, and that's why, because they're different languages of the same term, which is that Jesus is the anointed one, the one that's set apart for a task or a purpose. When I say the word anointed, I think that we may go to sort of a, an over-religiousized, to make up a word, uh, word, anointed. 
But this is not something that we should put in just a biblical category. We do things that set, a people, set people apart for certain positions as well. Think of it as a cultural swearing in, like a setting apart service. We do this for judges, where judges say, and they swear in, and they say, I will administer justice. And so we may not say that we're anointing them, but in function, that's basically what that is, is we're saying we're setting you apart for a special purpose, and that is to administer justice. We do this for physicians and doctors. They say, I'm swearing in. I will practice medicine honestly. We do this for governing officials. I will govern honestly. And you know what we're doing when we do that? We're setting them apart for a special task or purpose. It's an anointing of sorts. But in biblical times, anointing someone with oil was a sign that God was setting that person apart for a particular role and specifically a God-ordained purpose. In the Old Testament, people were anointed for three positions. And this is really important to where we're going to go for the rest of the message today, okay? People were anointed, set apart for a task for three primary positions. And those positions were prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. And so when John boldly proclaims to Jewish readers that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ, he is saying that Jesus perfectly fulfills the roles of, you guessed it, prophet and priest and king, which, by the way, will be further evidence to his being the Christ. I'll put it this way. If John himself were behind this pulpit today, for one thing, you'd be getting a much better preacher. But if John himself was here today, I think that he would say the same thing to us, even as believers, that we need to make Jesus exactly what and who he is to make him the Christ. And again, I'll say, whether once in salvation or every day in sanctification, as we grow more in godliness, we choose to make Jesus the Christ every day. I'm going to leave you guys with three things if you're taking notes this morning. This great plea his three functions, prophet, priest, and king. The first one I want to look at is priest, and that is that we may rest in his salvation. That we may rest in his salvation. I'm going to be explaining now sort of how Jesus fulfills these three roles. And again, the reason why is because John's goal here is summary. Verses 30 and 31 are summary verses. And because of that, he calls them the Christ. We need to summarize what exactly that means and why it's relevant to us. But the first way is as priest that we're to rest in his salvation. It says that he's a priest. When I say priest, what comes to your mind immediately? Rhetorical question. But for me, when I think about a priest in, our, in a worldly sense, and where I maybe watch movies or TV shows, which I, clearly I do that a lot. That's all I talk about from the introduction on, right? Um, but when I think about a priest, I think about Catholicism, and I think about confessional. Uh, you may see that in media, or maybe you yourself have been to confessional before. If, uh, maybe you came from a Catholic background or grew up in a Catholic family. Uh, but confessional is, you think about that when you think of priest, because there's this guy that's in the, the booth next to you, and so you speak and say, Father, this is my confession, and so you, you give to him that he may give to God. And the reason why people do that is because they would believe that the priest is the go-between. He's the mediator. I need to give it to him because he can then give it to the Father. Let me just say something before I move on from that. I'm not a priest, okay? Sometimes I have a conversation with people and they're like, what do you do? It's like, I pastor a church. Oh, okay, so how long have you been a priest? Uh, never. I, I've never been that because I'm not a, a go-between or a mediator between God and man. Praise be to God that we only have one and his name is Jesus. Uh, and we'll get to that in just a second as Jesus is the priest. But Old Testament priests, before Jesus became flesh, they served as mediators. Just like the Catholic Church may do today, they served as mediators between God and man. But please hear this. 
Doesn't the word mediator imply conflict? It does, right? There had to be a mediator between God and man because necessarily when we hear mediator, we think these two parties are not on the same page. If you go to marital counseling, you may have a pastor or a counselor, and sort of what they're doing in that function is they are mediating. They're trying to resolve conflict and bring two parties that may be far apart back together. Or a legal counsel that brings two parties together that have some sort of conflict of sort that needs to be sorted out. What's the conflict of Scripture between a holy God and sinful man? Well, that's it, right? That God is holy, that he's perfect in every way. And I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever had a perfect day in my life. See, the Bible says that we come into this world stained by sin, bearing the consequences of that sin, and the wages of that sin is death and separation from a holy God, which is bad news. We say the word gospel because it means good news. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus became the priest, the mediator between two parties that were far off and brought them together by the blood of his, by the blood of his work on the cross, right? That's the good news of the gospel. When we think about a mediator, we think we're broken. God is holy. May Jesus bring us together. And even in the Old Testament, Old Testament priests' sacrifices made temporary peace between God and man. They brought these temporary atonements that never really lasted but temporarily atoned, satisfied. But Jesus is our final mediator, our great high priest. How? Because the Old Testament sacrificial system only anticipated the one who would ultimately fulfill it. We see this all just draped in the New Testament, but a couple of passages that I love. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator. Don't miss that. What I said a minute ago about all those priests, how many are there? There's one. There's one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. Hebrews 9, 12 then says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal, not temporary, not temporary, an eternal redemption. And where was that done? The altar of Calvary. So why is it important to you and I that Jesus, the Christ, is the priest? I said it a moment ago when I showed you it on the screen, and that is that we may rest in his salvation. To rest in his salvation. That means to make the great high priest your great high priest. To trust in his redeeming work at Calvary and lean on his acceptance, his peace that he earned for you. One way that we can do that is to understand this. And man, I feel like I say things like this a lot, but I, I really want you to hear this. A way that we can trust in Jesus as our high priest, okay, is to understand that God does not ascribe value to you based on what you think that you are worth. He ascribes value to you based on how much he was willing to pay for your soul the life of his son. I'm going to say that again. That God does not ascribe value to you <coughs> based on what you think you're worth. He ascribes value to you based on how much he was willing to pay for your soul. It's the life of his son, Jesus the Christ. So because of that, because that's finalized, don't let your joy rise and fall 
based on how you feel that day, based on your performance that day. Let your joy rise based on the performance of Jesus the Christ who bled and died and came back to life that you may have life. Your sense of worth is not tied to your work, but to Christ's work. And yet, I'm going to say this, that there is a place for works when we consider that he is also prophet. And that's the second thing, that we're called to obey his teaching. It's a plea from John. If he's the Christ, certainly rest in his salvation, but also obey his teaching. That means that he's the prophet. You know, growing up, <coughs> I never really knew the role of biblical prophets. Uh, you may have a tendency like I did, you know, growing up in the church and stuff. I still, I heard the word prophet, and all I heard was somebody that put their hand like on a crystal ball and told the future. And that's just not a good understanding of what a biblical prophet uh, was. But we may think of them as a fortune teller. They weren't that. This wasn't the role of prophets in the Bible. A good way to remember it is that prophets were God's mouthpieces. They were God's mouthpieces. They brought the word of God to God's people. And as God's mouthpieces, they were tasked with speaking God's word to his people. In the Old Testament, we read about the prophets. This included both proclaiming God's truth to his people and, yes, revealing God's plans for the future. But here we say this. Jesus did that too. Jesus proclaimed the word of God, and Jesus also said this is what's coming. He was a prophet, the prophet. It's not a coincidence that John tells us that Jesus is the word made flesh. He's the Word made flesh. He is God made flesh. His Word made flesh. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 sort of speaks on this. It says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. All of them. They were the mouthpieces of God. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. You see, Jesus is the greatest prophet because he perfectly and most powerfully is the mouthpiece of God. His mouth is God's mouth. His words are God's words. That means if we're going to make him our prophet, we're going to give our lives to what his will is, to obey his teaching, it means that if Jesus was and is about something, then God was and is about that thing, and we should be about that thing. What God's view of marriage and intimacy is should be our view of marriage and intimacy. And not just here, but in our actions, in our words. It means what God's view of wholesome speech should be, or speech in general, should be our perspective and our view of what speech should be. It means that God's view of friendships and encouraging others should be our view of our friendships, our relationships. That God's view of the poor should be our view of the poor and that it's helping them and meeting their needs. That God's view of ministering to orphans and widows, we should share that. That God's view of the sanctity of life inside and outside of the womb, we should share that, no matter what the culture says, because we share the mouth of God. I mean, that God's view of sacrificial, cheerful giving of your finances and of our time should be our view of sacrificial and cheerful giving. That God's view of others as we forgive, as he forgives, should be our view of forgiveness toward others with no condition of return. And if that's the view of Christ, and that's the view of our God, then we should not just make it our view and our perspective. We should also ensure that we teach it to the generation that comes behind ours. 
to teach God's word to your children, to teach God's word as you lead your wife in these things, to guide your peers in these things as an ambassador of the prophet, of the Christ. <clears throat> an ambassador is a representative, someone that perfectly typifies what it's like to be from that nation, speaking secularly, but as we are from the nation of God, the kingdom of God, we should accurately represent and be an ambassador for our king. Don't be a better ambassador for your hobbies, for your politics, and for your sports team than you are for your Lord. Isn't it crazy? Some of us are more passionate and dedicated to hating Pepsi in favor of Coke than we are hating sin in favor of godliness. Your Facebook friends may be more familiar with how you feel about sports than how you feel about eternity. What does that say about the kind of ambassador that we are? They may be more familiar with your politics than they are with your praise. What does that say about what kind of ambassador we are? <clears throat> See, living for the prophet isn't a matter of giving your behavior to a rule book, but rather giving your heart to a king. We do this by understanding that he is on the throne and we aren't. And so the last element of this great plea in saying, believe that Jesus is the Christ, is finally to trust in him as king, to submit to his authority as king. That's the third thing, submit to his authority as king. We see this in, in a few passages that I'm gonna mention, both Old and New Testament, about the kingship of Jesus, which is wild. You see the kingship of Jesus even in the Old Testament. That's kind of crazy, right? He didn't even walk on this earth yet, and yet his kingship is there. God promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, he said, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. I'm gonna just, again, hear that. God told David that his kingdom would be forever. Guess what? David died. In other words, David didn't live forever. His kingdom didn't, in his hands, last forever. Why did God say that? Because this promise was fulfilled not in David, but in the son of David, who was also given the title, by the way, son of David, the Christ was. In fact, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of that genealogy that whenever you're doing your reading plan or you come to Matthew, you may skip that. But in chapter 1, verse 1 of that genealogy, which is very important, it says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. You know why? Because the kingdom never departed from the son of David. The son of David was foretold to be a ruler of God's people and also their deliverer, their savior. The Jews of Jesus' time expected that savior, a political king is what they expected, one that would see Rome and see their uh, imprisonment, see their affliction and say, Let's take names and kick tails, and we're going to get Rome out of here. We're going to be our own sovereign state. It wasn't the type of king that Jesus was. Jesus did not see that Rome was the enemy. He saw a far greater enemy, and that's the enemy of sin. And our king did conquer, but not the Rome, Roman enemy that they expected. Jesus conquered the real enemy, sin and death. He did that once again at Calvary. And as a result of that, Jesus has, as Matthew 28, 18 tells us, all authority in heaven and on earth that has been given to me, he said, in that great commission impending. In verse 31, it calls Jesus, chapter 
20 of John, back there it says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then it says the Son of God. The Son of God sits on the throne. I'm going to read a passage that I think just perfectly typifies this. Ephesians 1, 19 through 21, it says this. Please look close. I think it's going to be on the screen. Yeah, watch, watch this. It says that God has displayed, which it says right before this, God has displayed what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Listen to the kingship here. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the age to come. You know what that means? Guys, listen, Jesus is king. That means Jesus is king, and that his throne is eternal. Whether we bend the knee or not, whether your neighbor bends the knee or not, whether the government bends the knee or not, Jesus reigns over all. And the way that we should respond to that Believe that Jesus is the Christ as king. The way that we should respond to that is to make him your supreme authority. To make him your supreme authority in your household. It should be evident to your spouse and children who is the king in your home. Is the king sports, entertainment? What drives the heart of your schedule? Is the king school? Is the king work? Or have you made it very clear in your home that we worship King Jesus and we bow to no other throne? In your household, this must be true to make him the supreme authority. In your heart, this must be true. Is he the supreme authority? I showed you guys this weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months ago. Throw that slide up there, Greg, the, the one about the filter. Do you guys remember this? It's been a long time that I showed you guys this. Um, in our culture, in the Bible Belt, I think that this is what a lot of our faith looks like. That, that Jesus is a convenient add-on to all the buckets that we're pouring our time, our money, our energy, our affections into. And we're really split. Because a lot of the time is that Jesus actually gets the very last of it. We put our heads on our pillows at the end of the day and say, shoot, another day where I didn't even give him a thought. Another day that I haven't prayed. Another day that I didn't read my Bible. And so what it is, is he's just the last bucket on a long list of buckets that are getting their fill. And so we get to the, the very bottom of the picture and say, I got a little bit. I guess I'll give him the remainder. And that's what a lot of our faith looks like. And it is absolutely destructive. Because you know what it ends up doing? What we just said. It leaves you feeling bare and empty at the end of the day. But instead, shouldn't our life look like this? Go to the, the other one. This is what happens when Jesus is the filter through which we see life. If he's the supreme authority, you see how if he is at the top, if we give him our first fruits, what happens as a result? It enriches all of the other buckets into which your life is poured. That's what it means to make Jesus the supreme authority of your life. Is that easy? Absolutely not. Is it simple? You better believe it is. The Christian faith is very simple. It is not easy. It is difficult. But it is very simple. Simple enough that little kids at vacation Bible school can understand. And yet it's complex enough and difficult enough that even as adults, 
We can't get it right. The challenge is there, to filter life through the lens of Jesus. But when we fail, and we will, because we struggle there, right? Here's the good news. That we take comfort, we take comfort, not in how much we have in that bucket at the end of the day, but we take comfort in the fact that the victory is already won, and it's not won by your daily performance. It is won by his eternal work. You see, empires rise and fall. Even David's kingdom was split two generations later. His reign was in ashes a few generations later. But Jesus' rule and reign will see no end because the enemy is already his footstool. That's why at Christmas we sing about comfort and joy. The very last thing in this conclusion, like I said, we have an epilogue next time, that by believing you may have life in his name, that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what he says in verse 31, that by believing you may have life in his name. Life, living, that the reader will have real and true life. You know, he's saying that to people that have beating hearts. But the implication is that some people are dead men walking, right? Doesn't he say that to living people that have lungs that are coursing through in oxygen? He's writing to beating hearts, and yet he can say, only if you believe may you have life. You know what that means? A lot of people in this world are walking dead. Walking dead. Going through life with a beating heart that is made of stone that has never been made new and never been given real life. Maybe you've come a lot of times. You've heard lots of sermons. You've sang lots of songs. You may have even prayed silent prayers. And yet you know down deep that you're just playing church. That you're walking dead. And the reason you feel cold and empty at the end of the day is because God has never given you new life and you've never surrendered all things to him. That you've never come to a point where you say, God, I'm a sinner and I'm broken. Put me back together. You may be here today because you're walking dead. Don't leave this place without finding life by believing in the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. Others of you may have already made that decision. And yet you're here and you still feel cold and empty and dead. And in a very different sense, you're walking dead. That you have found yourself idolizing the vanities of this life to the point that you don't know where the fire went. You don't know where the zeal went, but you ain't got it. Today, John has a word for you. And that is to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, as the Christ, once again. I said at the beginning, and I'll reiterate it now, the decision to make Jesus the Christ is not just something we do once in salvation. It's something we do every day of our lives as we rest in his salvation as priest, as we obey his teachings as prophet, and where we are thankfully thrust into his arms as we make Jesus the king of our lives. And it's easy to miss it. And it's easy to get at the end of your rope, at the end of your life, and say, Life moves pretty fast. I didn't stop and look around and just take it in. 
You could miss it.